Thank you, that was beautiful, especially that well-timed percussion of the hair. Just astounding. Our second scripture reading is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. You can find it at page 2 of the New Testament section of your pew Bibles. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only God. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Please join me in prayer. Holy God, reveal your presence with us this day as we journey this path of Lent with your Son. Send your Spirit upon us that we might listen, discern, and take heart. We always begin Lent with Jesus' 40-day journey into the wilderness before he begins his public ministry. Lent itself is modeled on this story. Jesus fasted and prayed in order to learn what God was calling him to do and who God was calling him to be. We're told he was led by the Spirit to be tested, to build the spiritual strength and integrity to accomplish the work ahead of him. In the same way, we now begin a period of reflection and prayer so that we can learn what it means for us to be Christ's followers. The first verse in Matthew's passage tells us, Then... Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Before you're distracted by who this devil is and whether people really believe this stuff, Matthew just doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't have anything like a consistent understanding of some being called a devil or even a consistent understanding that such a being exists. Just know that the meaning and value of this story doesn't turn on whether you think This devil is a literal being or a symbolic one, symbolic perhaps of the voices both within and outside us that try to get us to do what we really don't want to do, at least in our better moments. But devils aside, we start at verse 1 of chapter 4, if we start with verse 1 of chapter 4, without looking back at why Matthew says, then, then Jesus was led, we miss a crucial point of this story. 
It would be like starting to watch The Lion King when Simba is running away from the pride without having seen the part where his father dies, or watching The Wizard of Oz after Dorothy has landed in Munchkinland, but never having seen the farmhands or Miss Gulch or that traveling fortune teller who are then transformed into the characters that she meets in Oz. What we miss if we start with Jesus in the wilderness without looking back at chapter 3 is that Jesus has just been baptized. Jesus stepped out of the Jordan River and heard God say, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is crucial to the understanding of the story because each of the devil's temptations begins with a provocative, even goading challenge. If you are the Son of God. In other words, how do you know you're God's Son? Can you prove it? That's the temptation. The devil is saying, wouldn't it be better to know for certain? All you have to do is prove it. Turn stone to bread, jump from the temple, worship me, and you'll never doubt again. But the devil's questions raise in Jesus another bigger question. What does it mean to be God's beloved son? Has Jesus been given some kind of royal privilege? Some sort of imperious authority? Some kind of supernatural power over the natural elements in order to make himself more safe and more comfortable? Or has Jesus been called to reveal what it means to be a human being, created and loved by God, and choosing to live in the kingdom of God, to live as though God is the ruler of our hearts and our minds? What does it mean to be God's beloved son or God's beloved children? Poet Moira Caldecott suggests one answer. Our being is the expression of God's thought. We contain the love of God, and God contains us. And as we unfold on the earth through shell creature, fish form, reptile, bird and mammal, through ichthyosaurs, plesiosaurs, dinosaurs, and ape, we are learning step by step what containment means. The circles are still widening, still evolving the mighty concept, that magnificent idea. Six days, seven, a million years, a thousand million, the count is nothing. The being is all. Praise be to our great God and the word that resonates in our hearts still. May we not separate ourselves in arrogance from the great work. For we know the sound of the word, but not its full meaning. We contain the love of God, and God contains us. May we not separate ourselves in arrogance from God's great work. The devil is asking Jesus, tempting Jesus, to separate himself from God, from God's work, to trust himself rather than God. The devil's trying to bait Jesus into thinking that the human life that God has given him is not enough that he needs more, something stupendous, showy, powerful. David Lowe's asks, might it be that part of, the human, part of being human is being aware that we are insufficient, 
that we are not complete in and of ourselves, that lack is a permanent part of our condition. To be human, in other words, is to be aware that we carry inside us a whole, an emptiness that we will always be restless to fill. In the story of Adam and Eve, they behold the fruit and conclude in a heartbeat that their whole is shaped just like that fruit. Yet after they eat, the emptiness remains. Someone has said that every back shed and garage is full of tools and toys someone imagined would fill the emptiness in his or her life. It's the same longing for some kind of completion. That's what this devil is suggesting to Jesus. Jesus, you're not complete. You're not enough, but you could be. You can fill the slack for yourself. You don't need to wait for God, who, by the way, may or may not be there. You can be safe, happy, and fulfilled on your own terms. So we're really right back in that Genesis 3 story. Jesus is being tempted in the same way that Adam and Eve were. If you'll go back and read the verses before those that Scott read today, you'll see that Adam and Eve lacked for nothing. Why did they think something was missing? Why do we? On the other hand, Jesus could say, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And the lilies, even Solomon in all his glory, was not clothed like one of these, but strive first for the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So why do people work so hard to buy more stuff, bigger stuff, better and more impressive stuff? Why do people sell their integrity for power, prestige, and status? Why do they shade the truth or outright lie to keep their seats in Congress or to win a cabinet post? Why do people ruin the lives of other people and even the planet that we share in order to be winners rather than losers? Why do people struggle and even sacrifice for something so much less satisfying than the kingdom of God? Why do we think that we can fill this lack ourselves? Because after working and scheming and spending and finally getting the stuff or the power or the fame or the glory, the, the degrees, the corner office, the trophy wife or husband, the cool car, the latest basketball shoes, the latest iPhone, the emptiness remains. That's the truth that the market exploits. We won't be satisfied with any of these things. We need the next thing, the next conquest, the next win. But this relentless pursuit, my friends, is destroying God's planet, which means it's also destroying us and our children's future. And yet we are not satisfied. Blaise Pascal once described this essential condition of humanity as having a God-shaped hole. The devil tempts Jesus to fill that hole himself with things and power and glory. He even tempts Jesus with being a hero because if Jesus turns stones into bread, couldn't he solve world hunger? That would be good. If Jesus takes over the world, wouldn't he run it much better than Caesar or any president, past or present? That's the temptation. But even for good purposes, Jesus knows there is no filling of that gap. No permanent erasing of that whole except in and through 
our relationship with God, or as Augustine put it, we humans are always restless until we rest in God. Still, we have to be honest that being a Christian or a person of faith doesn't mean that that hole, that need, that awareness of our limits or finitude are erased once and for all, are they? Even with regular church attendance, lots of good Presbyterian committee work, an active prayer life, that sense of incompleteness is still there. Perhaps to be human is to accept that we are finally created for ongoing relationship with God and each other and with all of God's creation. Perhaps the goal of the life of faith isn't to overcome that whole, but to discover God in the middle of it. Perhaps faith doesn't do away with the hardships that are part and parcel of life, but rather gives us the courage to stand. As, as Floyd Tompkins said to us last week, quoting Jesus, stand up and do not be afraid, or at least stand up and be less afraid, knowing Jesus was tempted just as we are and knows our struggles firsthand. This same Jesus now invites us to find both hope and courage in the God who named not only him but all of us God's beloved children so that we also might discover who we are by remembering whose we are. So we begin Lent in the wilderness, but together, here at First Presbyterian Church for the next six weeks, We'll help each other remember who we are by recalling whose we are, God's beloved children, part of God's beloved and precious creation. You can sign up on our website for a daily email that gives you a carbon-reducing fast this Lent, a hint this Lent. Every week in worship, you'll find a strip of paper in your bulletin. It's a piece of scrap paper, and we invite you to write on that strip a commitment you're willing to make to care for God's creation, or an action that you have taken to care for God's creation, or even just a prayer, any prayer, one word, a few words, for any part of God's creation, which, of course, is everything, because as the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. We're using scrap paper intentionally. We're repurposing it. And then we invite you to leave those pieces of paper with your commitment or prayer in the beautiful purple baskets that Virginia Tebow has made. There's one by the font and one up here by the lectern. Sometime during the service or after the service, those baskets are woven out of strips of fabric that we used in our prayer net during Lent a few years ago. So, also repurposed. At the end of Lent, these repurposed paper strips with your commitments and prayers, will be repurposed once again to create a piece of art, which you'll get to see on Easter. We contain the love of God, and God contains us. May we not separate ourselves in arrogance from God's great work. May it be so for you and for me. Amen. Amen.